Well, if you're looking for something entertaining to do around the end of May, if you're not going to be stuck in a cabin somewhere, you can always go to Phoenix Fan Fusion because you are going to find a collection of artful liars there. That would be us, the hosts of the ever-so-popular Disinformed podcast. We are going to be presenting four, count them, four panels over the course of Friday and Saturday, and that would be May 27th and 28th. So come check us out. We're going to do a lot of Stephen King talk, and we're going to whip in a live episode. So come check us out again, May 27th and 28th at Phoenix Fan Fusion. So on a scale of Shane to Hunter Thompson, how stoned are you, Michael? I'd say probably one or two levels above you. Glenn Bateman? Y- yes, yeah, yeah. We've established that you're just going to get hornier as time goes on. <laughs> it, it is apparently known and established, so... Randy, in fact. <laughs> Edgelord Michael over here, just getting ready to <laughs> get keep done recording it. an episode and then all of a sudden you're eyeing all the edges of your tables with a different kind of glare. Like, ooh, this could be it. I start <laughs> sharpening the them just to get even more edge out of them. Let's not talk about sharp objects here. We're, we're too close to the, uh, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of things that will make you uncomfortable, by the eternal, behold. 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 <laughs> it's the Disinformed Podcast. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Michael. I'm Courtney. And we have something to celebrate right off the top here, friends, because Courtney has officially moved in to the number three spot on our list of uh, oh. presenters. And so, John, once again, you are our bright and shiny <laughs> little caboose that can. Sometimes. I am dummy thick. <laughs> that is the only Indeed. thing that God gave me. I heard him coming from a mile away. <laughs> Keep firing hey. the guards! <laughs> <laughs> So, Silent Snake, you are not. (laughs) I really need to get a a sound bite of Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems. Just going, I'm going to come. Just so I can hit that button whenever I need to. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. Why? What did you you just mispronounce there? Oh, sorry. Kristen actually really liked this, too. So, let me put my heart into it. Uncut Gems. Indeed. Got to keep the bit alive, friends. And speaking of bits that we are keeping alive for the uninitiated amongst you, what we typically do on this show is we delve into random esoteric nonsense, and in the course of explaining it to one another, we lie occasionally. That's the shtick. It is then incumbent upon the co-hosts listening to ferret out the fact from the fiction as they listen and call it out in situ. That is fun, right? And of course... Like all great American pastimes, it is a game show that no one can win. So it's it's fun for all involved parties. But we don't let you leave disinformed, friends. Let me just disabuse you of that notion up front. We have a denouement at the end of the episode. We explain what we lied about and why. And with that in mind, I have to issue an apology here. Because what I'm going to talk about this evening is a partial contributor to what brought us the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Pooping in the bed? Well, I mean, that's partial. The history Aquaman? of pooping in the bed. Aquaman. Who shit the bed? A disinformed tale. So, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, the two met while making a film, and that film was based on a book written by the author Hunter S. Thompson. So the book was The Rum Diary, and they uh, met and sort of kindled romance on the set and then eventually on their press tour. And so it's it's possibly, you know, Hunter's fault. Could be. Uh, Rum Diaries, did I ever tell you that that was the only time I've been so aggressively hungover that I couldn't focus on anything? No. We're... It was back like so when that came out, I was partying a lot and we had partied super hard and I woke up super hungover, but we had decided to go see the movie. What so we, we sit uh, me and a, a buddy of mine. I was staying out in the east. Oh, you were hanging with Gio, uh, Giovanni Rubisi at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I see. And we got, oh, uh, we got really greasy food, popcorn and snacks. And just for the life of me, I don't remember watching the Rum Diaries because I was just so aggressively hungover. And then mm. it was so bright and triggering after you'd been fucked up for a whole night. 
Much like the life of Hunter Thompson, strangely enough. (laughs) Anyway. But uh, we do have these weird sort of gossamer strands that interconnect a lot of our topics, right? The things that we are notably passionate about. So it could be Michael's various creepy pastai or, uh, you know, cooking and and weird uh, aspects of Asian culture for Courtney. And then just shit and Satanism in general for John. But I... <laughs> I'm going to deviate off of my norms of talking about, like, you know, murderers and weird haunted sites and aliens and get into something that I absolutely adore, which is the work of Hunter S. Thompson and the various aspects of his life. So, strangely enough. Oh, God, sorry. No, go ahead. What were you asking? Oh, I was going to say our podcast is very much like a ravioli in that sense. And Mm -hmm. you never know what is inside the ravioli. Quite. It's creepy in that fashion. And also cheesy, strangely (laughs) enough, in most instances. But uh, so I was an aspiring journalist when I was younger, and uh, a good portion of what motivated me along that path was the writing of Hunter Thompson. He's someone who is incredibly verbose, a little eccentric, and has a lot of rage. So you can see the commonalities between our personalities, right? (laughs) Shoofits. Unfortunately, um... One major aspect of Hunter's life that I didn't glom onto is his adoration for drug use, strangely enough. And that leads us to discuss this odd turn of events that I am absolutely fascinated by and that I love. And I don't think I've actually ever talked to any of you about, but it's one of these weird watershed moments in American history that needs to have some parallels drawn to it. And all the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp mess brought this back to my mind. I was like, hell, I could present about this because I know this pretty well. So, before I get too far ahead of myself, there are seven lies, as per usual, in this evening's episode. But we are going to discuss a little incident that occurred in 1970. So, two years before covering George McGovern's 1972 presidential campaign trail for the venerated and esteemed Rolling Stone magazine, eccentric author Hunter S. Thompson ran for office himself as a candidate for sheriff in Pitkin County, Colorado. His work for Rolling Stone, which includes 1971's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I am wearing a shirt of in memoriam. So good at doing, yeah. Indeed, I tried to stay on brand. It solidified Thompson's brand of quote-unquote gonzo journalism, which I have talked about previously in other iterations of the show, where it more reflects the author's perception of events than it does the actual incidents that occur. So one of the more famed ones is he talks about the Kentucky Derby and all the debauchery and depraved individuals that take part as opposed to the actual race itself, which is delightful. So, sadly, his garish nature, and that was one of his calling cards and trademarks, largely overshadowed his otherwise influential campaign. I say this because there's no arguing that Thompson, who... Trigger warning here, friends. Unfortunately, took his own life in 2005, which, uh, strangely enough, one of his wishes was he wanted to have his cremated remains shot into the sky out of a cannon, which our good friend Johnny Depp actually did for him and helped facilitate. No, that's not bullshit. Johnny Depp actually put his ashes in a cannon and shot it over his Woody Creek estate, which is delightful. They were very good friends, strangely enough. But in Um, any event, uh, it left behind uh, an iconoclast's legacy. So in his middle and later career, the author of Hell's Angels and, of course, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas earned a reputation as a literary profligate and mild fabulist. There you go, Michael. Owing to his unconcealed fondness for recreational drugs, hyperbole, wild turkey, fictionalized dialogue, explosives, and ominous capitalization, which is something he's very fond of. All (laughs) crucial components to what he termed gonzo journalism. But it's worth remembering that well before he was established as a gonzo journalist, or a neo-journalist, or an outlaw journalist, Hunter was simply a journalist. Just another 20-something freelancer who spent most of the 60s hustling his way from paycheck to unglamorous paycheck. So, as ideas go... Pardon me, that's the uh, liquid death. 
sponsors, More please. Like so we're walking uh, mango <laughs> chainsaw for me this evening. Ooh, severed lime for you, God, Michael. You fucking well nerds. The only reason I'm not doing it with you is because mine is delivering tomorrow. Well, <laughs> you know, we'll all be hipster as hell soon enough. So mm-hmm. I look forward to you joining the club. And where's uh, yours, Courtney? Not me. I'm a poor. I've got my Kroger brand <laughs> lemon a, seltzer water. I am a poor. <laughs> I am one of those poors you're all talking about. And you hear about on the news. <laughs> I'm going to need you to utilize that for every After Dark going forward. You are no longer Jean Grey Ghost. You are a poor. <laughs> I am one of the poors. One of the famed poors from Eastern Connecticut. You know, from the movies. <laughs> Uh, fundraisers for me <laughs> go fund me oh i was gonna say i have a go fuck me that's open uh you can contribute to whenever How's you that want going to. for you i've been fucked plenty <laughs> <laughs> mostly by karma unfortunately but uh in any event not in the sexy way that you would hope no no not like the snickers satisfaction that you would expect from a mouthful but uh all right <laughs> You're never you when you're hungry. Indeed. Not when I got a mouthful of nuts either. But uh, as ideas go, speaking of nuts, as ideas go, Thompson running for political office was a curious one. He was a self-confessed freak, maniac, and drug fiend, greatly enamored with guns, whiskey, and quantities of hallucinogens that could knock out entire metropolises at a time. Not exactly a poster boy for self-restraint or its enforcement. In fact, Thompson's zeal for firearms terrified many conservative Aspenites with the threat of a military coup should the journalist fail to succeed in his electoral aspirations, which was, of course, a primary snipe which was utilized by his opponents against Thompson during the various electoral debates leading up to the sheriff's election. Is that true? What's they that? actually thought he was going to. Oh, be you're onto something. Yeah. That's how coup? he responds to it. Yeah. Did they talk. actually think like, he was going to do a coup? Um, it was rumored because he would take random firearms out, including automatic weapons, and just rail them off uh, <laughs> all the time. But no, they weren't actually expecting a coup. They they didn't expect a militarized response. They were looking at some interesting aspects of what would happen to the police force if he took over. However. So, because the right wing is like, yeah, guns, throw them around. That's yes, great. We love yeah, that. That's all fine and good until there's one pointed at them. So, typically, they get a little sketchy about things like that, unless you're in Washington storming the Capitol, apparently. But, Jesus. uh, <laughs> all right. So, congratulations. Uh, Aspen in the late 1960s was still a relatively quiet, peaceful place where one could seemingly retreat from the chaos of the outside world. The rest of America seemed determined to bring Aspen into the modern era, but there was notably reluctance to change in the valley. Many in the community were determined to upend progress at all costs, while others were more than willing to accept huge sums of money from developers to tear down this little piece of paradise and, to steal from Joni Mitchell, put up a parking lot uh, or apartments and gaudy hotel complexes catering (laughs) to super-rich dilettantes with timeshares. I don't know. kind of sounds like paradise. Yeah, you'd think. I have two tickets, in fact. (laughs) It's right on the money. Uh, In short... Aspen at this time was a war zone between shifting ideologies of very progressive and very conservative inhabitants. Predictably, the quiet mountain town became a place where public debate was valued and tensions were often high between competing perspectives. On the letters to the editor pages of two Aspen newspapers, the Liberal Times and the conservative Illustrated News, one frequently found colorful, passionate takes on local issues. With that said, however, even in a place like Aspen, there was a limit to how colorful or passionate one could be without drawing attention. So enter the dragon, or Dr. Thompson if you're nasty. In March of 1968, a letter which began, Herr Ethiter, was sent to both newspapers. Signed by Hunter S. Thompson and allegedly written on behalf of Adolf Hitler's personal secretary, Martin Bormann, who was believed at the time to be hiding in Argentina, the letter heaped praise upon the Aspen Sheriff's Department for possessing, in the writer's mind, the value system of the defunct Third Reich. (laughs) 
<laughs> the letter. This is, this is uh, true. Yes, this is true. A staggering piece of satire by a man with a fondness for shock humor and a talent for satirical letters ignited a powder keg of political enmity the likes of which the nation would not see again until 2021. For Hunter Thompson, angry letters were an art form. He didn't just fire off quick midnight missives, but instead crafted and drafted careful but vituperative communiques intended to impress and dumbfound their recipients. You can see why I have a fondness for him, because this is any general thread I'm involved in. It's making a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Ding, ding. He possessed a phenomenal imagination, a righteous anger, and an ear for what F. Scott Fitzgerald penned, the high white note. For exactly, what you're gonna have to look that one up yourselves, friends. For Thompson, this often meant violent but lyrical passages featuring unusually specific details and admittedly outrageous ideas. His letters often acted as a sandbox where he could mentally experiment, and his Borman letter was one such example. Thompson, who was in 1968 a relative newcomer to the area, cared deeply about the valley he called home and was unhappy with the local government and land developers. So think like Maynard James Keenan in a portion of Arizona, okay? Somebody who's got a decent amount of money to throw around and a reputation that precedes them. Uh, He also felt the other individuals occupying the area were only interested in exploiting the natural beauty of the area for profit. So, without vast financial resources or political power, he continued to speak his mind in letters and articles, denouncing the people who threatened the ecology of the region. However, the events of that fateful year soured him on such playful and optimistic tactics, and soon it was clear that letter writing was simply not sufficient. Thus... The assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy sent a chilling message that sounded a death knell for what had been an era of unparalleled hope. Thompson is notably one of the major influences on the hippie movement and really rode the wave again. A lot of experimental drug use, a lot of freedom of choice and expression, and obviously he's a paradigm for that. So He had to expand his mind. Uh, one of the more famed bits of literature is the wave speech from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And if you have not encountered it, it's fantastic. I recommend you look it up. I won't do so here because it's lengthy, but uh, really speaks to kind of the deflowering of the American dream, as it were, at the time. Okay. But uh, two months after Kennedy was shot, Thompson took off for the Democratic Convention in Chicago, suspecting that he might be about to witness the death of the American dream. Possibly just wanted to lay some flowers on the grave as it stood. But uh, when Mayor Richard Daley unleashed hired thugs on peaceful protesters at this convention, it was taken by many in the Chicago Police Department as permission to brutally assault anyone who might have supported or amplified the anti-establishment sentiment. Thompson himself was actually violently beaten, which he would later credit as turning as a major turning point in his life. I went to the Democratic Convention as a journalist and returned a raving beast, he said. In November, Richard Nixon was elected president, and of course, in Hunter's mind, any lingering thread of hope was wholly severed. America appeared to be turning into a fascist dystopia, and he felt utterly helpless. This is actually one of the things that caused him to take his life later as well was the second election of George W. Bush, because he felt that he'd already seen this play before and he knew what the ending was and he didn't intend to sit through it again. And that actually is true, isn't it? Yes, that is true. That was one of the primary things that pushed him over the edge. And I think we talked about that in a previous episode Mm -hmm. as well. So there was nothing that he could do about national politics, and thus it was time to turn towards local action. And here, his politics and literature would begin to fuse. Although Aspen seemed to remain apart from the rest of the country in many respects, it too was affected by the social changes that had swept the country in the 60s. The image of Aspen as a frontier town in the mountains where the modern world was kept somewhat at bay and where personal freedom still mattered attracted a combustible mixture of entrenched conservatives and footloose hippies. Although they came to Aspen for largely the same reasons, those of the conservative disposition had mostly arrived long before our free love friends. 
added to which they owned the bulk of the land, which bestowed on them what they perceived as preeminent authority in the area's decision-making. So, naturally, they also attempted to exert their authority over the area's law enforcement establishment, and, consequently, it quickly became a dangerous proposition to venture outdoors looking like a hippie. In 1967, the year Thompson had moved to Woody Creek, Colorado, a prominent restaurateur and police magistrate, Guido Meyer, and I'm going to take that off of the books here, that was actually his name, uh, was embarking upon a campaign to rid this town of the hippie scourge. So a, it's an Eric Cartman-like character that just wants to <laughs> mow down every hippie they find. Yes, he wants you to respect his mouthon. And he definitely shot first. Naturally. Yes. Wow. Uh, well done, Michael. Well done. Uh, a local lawyer, Joe Edwards, took up the hippies' cause and brought the case to court, where Meyer, always an outspoken figure, confessed his prejudices with a histrionic and hysterical outburst, bellowing, Those dirty hippies! These underfed, undereducated, and unwashed miscreants masquerading as saviors for change when they aren't even capable of changing clothes! You want to know what would make the world a better place? An excellent start would be to exterminate these communist beatniks like the raving roaches they are! Now say bubble bath. Bubble bath. <laughs> <laughs> that almost sounded like a Nixon speech. You'd think. Uh, was this it? was definitely one of the acolytes, I can assure you. Huh. So I, I half expect you to start using like jowl, like, <laughs> <laughs> I am in fact a crook. Uh, so you can say this made the case extraordinarily easy for Edwards, who, yeah, when you have that sort of out easy for Edwards. Yes. I was going to say is like, when you have that sort of outburst in court, the other party has to just go like, uh, in any event, uh, his opponent's big mouth and of course, lack of legal training ensured a very ignominious defeat. Meyer had deliberately denied people their constitutional rights, based wholly on their appearance, and was so certain of his convictions that he actually refused to deny it. The judge, of course, came down on the side of the flower children, but Mayer kept his campaign of intolerance, and certain that these barefoot outsiders were agents of the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Edwards, naturally subsequently became the hero of Aspen's youth. So two years later, well into the wee hours of the morning, Edwards was awoken by a phone call from the nocturnal journalist, who proceeded to give a mumbling speech that explained why Edwards should run for mayor of Aspen with a notorious drug user as his campaign manager. <laughs> What could go wrong? Exactly. So Thompson and Edwards had never met before, but the lawyer agreed to be what com what Thompson affectionately labeled a freak power candidate. <laughs> freak power candidate? Yes, they called themselves the Freak Power Party. Well, there's your uh, band name, Michael. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Synanon can eat shit comparatively. But uh, <laughs> three weeks later, they lost to the Republican candidate, Eve Homeyer by just six votes. If the absentee ballot papers had been sent out at the time, however, they would have won. So, something to go into the uh, in notorious annals of the American archives here that we do so love our voting process. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Despite the loss, however, this was a tremendous lesson for Thompson in particular, who realized that he had made a serious impact on the local political landscape. The implications, however, were much grander. In a nut. What we proved here is that freak power is no joke. This is our country, too, and we can goddamn well control it if we learn to use these tools. Why not challenge the establishment with a candidate they've never heard of, who's never been primed or prepped or graced for public office, and whose lifestyle is already so weird that the idea of conversion would never even occur to him? In other words, why not run an honest freak and turn him loose on their turf to show up on all the normal candidates for the worthless losers that they are and always have been? 
It was an important realization for a man that had long shared the common belief that what happened in Washington had little connection to daily life in a place like Woody Creek, Colorado. And so... The 1969 Joe Edwards for Mayor campaign had positioned Edwards as the savior of hippies and other outsiders, with Thompson as a local artist, oh, with Thompson and a local artist called Tom Benton running the show. They labeled their movement Freak Power as a way of profoundly proclaiming their status rather than attempting to ingratiate themselves among the local establishment. Cut to a few years later and they have, you know, drained the swamp. Yeah, it's strange. Sound very familiar or something. Yeah, mm. things get co-opted very quickly. But in any event, uh, Thompson later explained his willingness to actually self-apply the term freak. Uh, in the rotten fascist context of what was happening to America in 1969, being a freak was an honorable way to go. Born okay. of the hippie movement that had swept the nation just a few years earlier, freak power extended flower power into an altogether more coherent and aggressive political movement, which Thompson felt could be expanded into a national platform. It was, at its core, an effort to galvanize the youth of Aspen and create a viable voting bloc to leverage power away from the rich landowners of the area. So, while Benton produced artwork for their campaign posters, Thompson outlined his ideas in the local press. Kind of an interesting pincer movement of propaganda, if you will. In his letters and articles, Thompson was eloquent but argumentative. His tone was serious and the prose packed with facts and evidence. Yet, he couldn't resist his usual inventive and vitriolic phrasing, such as a hell broth of graceless thieves and rapacious greed heads. I love this man. <laughs> you made that up. Nope, those are Thompsonisms. Okay. All the quotes could be Shane or Thompson. Like, we're not going to be able to tell. Yeah. Welcome to the world, friends. Uh... <laughs> so, one of Thompson's promises during the Edwards campaign had been that if they won, he would definitely run for sheriff the following year. In 1970, he decided that losing by six votes was good enough for government work, and uh, thus entered the race for sheriff. It was going to be a campaign unlike any Aspen had ever seen before. Asked why he felt compelled to try and enforce laws when he was so famously noted for breaking them, Thompson then stated, We can't expect people to have respect for law and order until we teach respect to those we've entrusted to enforce the law. If you're going to be crazy, you have to get paid for it, or else you're going to get locked up. <laughs> Start a podcast. Oh, man, yeah. I love this man. It's worked out so far. Yeah. So together, Tom Benton and Hunter Thompson founded an organization called Meat Possum Press. And soon... Be no. Yes, that is actually what they called this. And they began wow, to... Wow, I love that. Uh, yeah, you know, it uh, is what it is. You can all be a meat possum. It's delightful. Well, if you do, you're going to clean it up. You're going to have to. Uh, soon they began work on a collaborative project that fused art and literature with politics. One day, as the two men plotted the trajectory of their burgeoning political movement, Thompson made a suggestion. We should do an Aspen wall poster. What the hell is that? Benton asked. It's going to be a single sheet thing, Thompson explained, and it'll have your graphics on one side and my writing on the other. I have to knock off the Thompson voice. going to make me start coughing. Uh, <laughs> do it. Do it. The do concept it. has been described as revolutionary, but in fact, Thompson had borrowed the idea from Warren Hinkle, who printed and handed out wall posters in the 1968 Democratic Convention while editor of Ramparts. I'm sure you know this, Michael, being the history buff that you are. Oh, yeah. Ramparts. Great magazine. Indeed. Agreed. What's your favorite issue? They're still out. They're still around today. Yeah, name five. Ramparts, Ramparts Volume 1, 2, 3, 4, and Swimsuit Edition. And in fact, if you like <laughs> Ramparts, you can scream it from the Ramparts. That's actually their motto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> scream us from the... <laughs> from us. Ramparts. When you're here, you're here. You're, you're in the Ramparts. <laughs> <laughs> the siren song of sweat between titties, the Ramparts Bikini Edition. <sighs> <sighs> All right, so 
The Aspen Wall poster's focus would vary from one issue to the next, so they wouldn't just be doing the same thing over and over again, with little editorial guidance beyond, of course, its founder's immediate interests. That said, they usually took aim at injustice in one form or another. The first edition attacked a corrupt attorney who subsequently resigned after its publication. The second looked more broadly at the death of the American dream, something Thompson was rather fond about espousing. The third wall poster was about what Thompson called, and I apologize for the phrase, it's what he said, land rape, and featured a story about dynamiting a windmill. Well, it's just good American fun. (laughs) Exactly. It's like cow tipping Mm -hmm. or waitress tipping, depending. Um, With the fourth, including, man, that was poorly timed, a naked woman and a discussion (laughs) of obscenity, juxtaposing the innocence of nudity with the horrors of the My Lay Massacre, which I'm sure Michael will explain to us a little extensively here. Uh, Yeah, Daddy. History, Daddy. That happened in the Vietnam War, right? That was uh, some sort of tragedy? I... I believe so. I have a link yeah. here if you want me to to pull it up. But uh, by I, all means, if you are so inclined, I mean I don't need to drag this thing out. I just figured you, as the the history major here, would have gotten a little I more am incensed. Not i I'm not very knowledgeable about the Vietnam War. Okay, well then we'll move on. All I know is that there was some weird guy with like a head floating off of his shoulders talking about horses there at one point, if I recall. No, that was actually World War Two and birthing chambers. Yes. Um, <laughs> Over what time, does it have to do with Vietnam. <laughs> well, there's not a literal connection, dude. But <laughs> I got buddies that died face down in the muck for you and I to record this simple podcast. But oh, you're uh, gonna finish your episode. You're I am. Finish your episode. You're finishing calm. my episode. Uh, over time, the wall poster grew in size and complexity, eventually featuring adverts in addition to the artwork and words. And that's obviously a good sign that you're getting traction. If people want to start spending money in order to help you, you're, you're doing something. I feel added right, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Take that in your fucking YouTube shorts. If only. Uh, okay. So. The wall poster was, of course, hardly the only unusual method of spreading the freak power message. Thompson invited his friend, Oscar Zeta Acosta, to Woody Creek. So, for fans of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you will recognize that Acosta is Thompson's friend, confidant, and lawyer, infamously dubbed Dr. Gonzo in the book, essayed by Benicio de... uh, Yeah. Del Toro? Del Toro, yes. (laughs) No. Yes. Oh, I'm yes. kidding. Yes. Maybe I was getting. I, I get Partially. on the Guillermo track, and then it scares me. So this is oh. so close. They're cousins. Um, but yes, Benicio del Toro essayed the uh, Acosta role. But in any event, uh, so Acosta had just lost his bid for mayor of Los Angeles, and together with a consortium of drinking buddies and activists, they plotted Thompson's campaign. So you can imagine how fucking bizarre these social circles were. It's a lot to keep track of. Naturally. uh, (laughs) You got to keep your mind well lubricated. Uh, That you do. A lot of strands in old dude's head. Uh, You, Michael. It would involve a wide-ranging and extremely creative media assault, foisting bizarre and usually satirical messages on a bemused public. Fueled by LSD and numerous other substances, the group holed up at the Jerome Hotel and managed to come up with a variety of approaches to draw attention to themselves. Before long... The freak power movement grew from a local affair and drew major media attention. The BBC, the New York Times, Time, and other publications descended upon the little mountain town, attempting to translate what was happening for a national audience naturally fascinated by the chaos. In the context of the era, someone like Hunter Thompson becoming sheriff was almost unimaginable for the average American. It's like someone like Donald Trump becoming president. Hmm. Who could imagine it? Yeah, it's so strange. In fact, even Thompson viewed the campaign as mostly a publicity stunt to begin with. When he first threw his hat into the ring, he didn't think it was likely that he would ever become sheriff. He was running to distract the media and his opponents from the other more legitimate candidates, such as Ned Vare, the freak power candidate for city commissioner. So, 
I'm the lightning pole here. Everybody look at the pretty monkey. We'll slide a bunch of legitimate individuals here that are going to help perpetuate our cause regardless. So to this end, Thompson then planned to act as a sociologist type ombudsman and then hire an experienced person to take up the traditional (laughs) duties of being the sheriff. So (laughs) normally get you one that can do both. But, uh, you know, this was the Trump Pence pincer again, like get someone who's (laughs) capable but fucking insane standing beside you and then you're fine. So, the campaign often appeared to run as a joke as well, but Thompson became serious about his platform and subsequently about carrying out the duties. Ooh, how tasty. It's like, sorry, I made it like a bad cat bag joke. But uh, he spoke in public and debated the incumbent sheriff, Carol Whitmire. And yeah, there's a name that you want to write home about. At public events where the audiences were genuinely surprised to find an eloquent, intelligent man articulate quite reasonable views on land management, land development, drug laws, and, oddly enough, police reform. Thompson even went so far as to shave his head and thus was able to refer to his opponent, Whitmire, with a straight face as my long-haired opponent. <laughs> no. I just, I'm so slap happy. Did that actually happen? That actually happened. He started oh shaving God. his head so that he Can could refer imagine? to him as my long haired opponent. I see why you're bringing up with the Amber Heard stuff, too. It's like Amber Heard copying Johnny Depp's outfits or like styles like a day later after he did them hmm. in the courtroom. There's a lot of psychic vampirism taking part these days, and it's not just in Stephen King works. Uh, there's a Robinson inside of all of us. Indeed. Needless to say, in a battle of wills or wits, Whitmire didn't stand a chance. Mm. (laughs) Poor fucker. Indeed. Thompson (laughs) often dominated his opponent in debates. And this reminds me of someone, you know, uh, in in particular talking about some monkey business back in the day. There's the smile I needed from Michael. Uh, Issuing some inflammatory and critical rhetoric such as, I agree that to catch a ski thief might be a hell of a lot harder than to catch some poor brother on the street with a joint in his hand. Maybe that's one reason that there's been so many marijuana arrests and so few ski arrests. (laughs) Oof. You'll never take me alive goes down. (laughs) (laughs) It is the the luge I am so afraid of. So Thompson continually refined his campaign platforms, combining aggressive radicalism, organized propaganda, and, of course, some controversial stances and hyperbolic claims. His tentative platform set forth six primary points. Are you ready for them? Oh, yeah. Give them. I'm ready. (sighs) Are all six of them lies? No. In fact... Uh, none of them are lies, so you can just sit back and enjoy these. Firstly, rip up all city streets with jackhammers and sod the streets at once. (laughs) Good point. All public movement would then be by foot and a fleet of bicycles, which would be maintained by the city police force. Solid. Change the name Aspen by public referendum to Fat City. (laughs) (laughs) What? I'm game for that. This would prevent greed heads, land rapers, and other human jackals from capitalizing on the name Aspen. These swines should be (laughs) fucked, broken, and driven across the land. Rad. Drug sales must be controlled. My first act as sheriff will be to install on the courthouse lawn a bastinado platform and a set of stocks in order to punish dishonest dope dealers in a proper public fashion. Each year, these dealers cheat millions of people out of millions of dollars, and it will be the general philosophy of the sheriff's office that no drug worth taking should be sold for money. And I will personally test every (laughs) single drug to make sure it is quality on my end. You're goddamn right. Hunting and fishing should be forbidden to all non-residents, with the exception of those who can obtain the signed endorsement of a resident, who will then be legally responsible for any violation or abuse committed by the non-resident he has signed for. Hmm. 
by this approach by this approach making hundreds or even thousands of individuals personally responsible for protecting the animals fish and birds who live here we would create a sort of de facto game preserve without the harsh restrictions that will necessarily be forced on us if these bloodthirsty geeks keep swarming in here each autumn to shoot everything they see needless to say Thompson actually based this claim on a particularly strange statute in Aspen Law, which gave every resident the right to legally kill any pig found on their property, so long as the carcass was sent to the county overseer. (laughs) The discovery of this law led to Hunter coining the term fun hog to describe those who frivolously killed animals for entertainment. Okay. Very interesting. Uh-huh. So is that statue bullshit? Yes, it is. Ha! <laughs> well, actually I should say, the statute is not bullshit. That was actually a New Jersey statute. Oh. Uh, not one Jersey. that happened here. But uh Thompson did frequently utilize the term fun hog, so I figured I could try to, you know, whittle a little something in there. Hmm. <laughs> the sheriff and his deputies should never be armed in public. Every urban riot, shootout, and bloodbath involving guns in recent memory has been set off by some trigger-happy cop in a fear frenzy. Whoa. This is 1970, friends. Damn. Little progressive (sighs) thinking, maybe. And it will be the policy... Just a touch. (laughs) It will be the policy of the sheriff's office to savagely harass all those engaged in any form of land rape. So there you go. Those were the platforms that Mr. Thompson was standing on. I mean, I don't see any issues. Yeah. Did he expand on the harassment for this land rape? I mean, you can speculate. I'm just picturing him standing off to the side, just, hey, can't do that. Stop. I'll give you some examples of his preferred methodology with later things, and you can extrapolate his okay. his given approach oh, here. <laughs> Furthermore, in spite of all of these, you know, rational-sounding arguments that Thompson's making, he also promised to fire the majority of the conservative county officials and bureaucrats as well once he got in office. And thus, the Freak Power campaign and its wall posters both caused a huge stir in Aspen, rallying the youth behind an exciting and intelligent candidate while terrifying the town's more conservative residents. Thompson's statements were incendiary, and Benton's graphics shocked the community. But perhaps the biggest issue was his political platform, which, despite his own love of firearms, included, of course, his promise to disarm the police department to avoid bloodbaths as part of his sweeping police reform. This notion naturally confounded a number of his ardent opponents who had actually prepared arguments against what they assumed to be his intention to militarize and mobilize the police force against land rapers, etc. So if you want to essentially outfit the entire Aspen Police Department like a SWAT team, because he was very fond of automatic weapons. Uh, owned a significant amount of Uzis, etc. And really like, enjoyed... Like the, there's He's like the Joker staying a step ahead of the police. Or, uh-huh. or like anyone that doubts him, it's fucking hilarious. He's delightful because on top of this, like there is untold sums of footage of him just going out in his yard and just shooting guns. <laughs> It's it's like the opening of Jackie Brown. It's just you know, Hunter in slow-mo, just, you know, sweeping for bullets. In any event, uh, Thompson detailed all of his policies in his first piece of writing ever for Rolling Stone, strangely enough, which was a relatively new music magazine headquartered in San Francisco. Considered by some to be the voice of America's youth, Rolling Stone was a fast-growing publication headed by the ruthless and temperamental Jan Wenner. Now, Wenner had founded Rolling Stone in 67 as a counterculture magazine focused on rock and roll. However, he'd never been entirely comfortable with the politics of the underground. It kind of, to him, scared away potential advertisers, which when you're working in print media, you need that (laughs) coin. Desperately, yeah. And thus, the magazine had started to take some flack during the late 60s for its perceived neutrality, particularly in comparison with some more radical publications like the Berkeley Barb. 
Winner at the time was intent upon building an empire. However, Thompson's freak power campaign provided the perfect opportunity for a shrewd businessman to appear to embrace radical politics, even though there was very little to lose by reporting a minor news story in a suburban mountain town. So, quite clever. And of course gets him in bed with Thompson, which would lead to a lot of headaches in the future. And some interesting follow-up on that. But So in Thompson's article, The Battle of Aspen, published on October 1st, 1970, he described his freak power campaign and presented his platform. He also showed his unusual style of writing to the readers of Rolling Stone for the first time. It was a long and unusual story filled with words like fun hogs and land rapers, and, like so much of Thompson's writing, combined the serious with the comedic. He suggests that the newly disarmed police force be trained to use wolverines, tasers, which were a newly invented handheld device which incapacitates a person by transmitting a 50,000-volt electric shock, jujitsu, and high-powered explosives to apprehend criminals. High-powered explosive is bullshit. No, it is not. It's the wolverines. No, it is not. (laughs) Jiu-jitsu? I really appreciate his fondness of woodland creatures. Yeah. I feel like we're kindred spirits yeah. in that. I, what's wrong with just tossing a wolverine at people? Come on, Michael. <laughs> I mean, Michael. It'll, it'll stop them. It'll, 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 yeah, no more crime. I just, uh, feel like, terrifying. I just feel like you threw in the explosives, like you knew the explosives were true, so you threw something else, so we would only, you know, sink our teeth into that. Well, so you're that's right. That's why I'm... Jiu-jitsu yeah. is jiu-jitsu is bullshit. So, uh, all right. Ha! I'm on to your tricks now. Uh, so all of the attention gained through his Rolling Stone article, wall posters, and regular media, which was very interested in the election, helped catapult Thompson from a relatively unknown author to a major name in journalism. However... With the Rolling Stone article published just prior to the election, his publicity blitz also ensured that his political campaign was, unfortunately, unsuccessful. The attention caused his opponents to work together, and Thompson was defeated by a rare American bipartisan effort. (laughs) Uh, That's the only time it happens. Uh He did the thing. So, in a move that very few could have predicted, local Republicans and Democrats actually came together to unite against the freak power. Unfortunately, Thompson offered making his concession speech while wrapped in an American flag and wearing a blonde wig. (laughs) I proved what I set out to prove. The American dream really is fucked. Wait, why the blonde wig? Your guess is as good as mine, friend. Okay. <laughs> is it bullshit? No, it's not. There okay. are you, you, one of the famed okay. pictures of this concession speech is the wig. Okay. But uh, I believe the flag. I just wasn't sure about the the wig. Okay. Maybe it was uh, an homage to an artist friend of his. Could yeah, be. Uh, he he and sense. Warhol did get along. So, in any event, nonetheless. Thompson's efforts did galvanize a movement towards serious political reform in Aspen. So here's the beautiful side of the coin. Two years later, Joe Edwards actually ran again and won his next campaign for mayor. And in 1986, the long-haired Bob Brodus, a good friend of Thompson's, became sheriff. Brodus actually implemented many of the police reforms that Thompson had pushed for in 1970, and was in fact so popular that he and his officers gained the nickname Dick Dove and his Deputies of Love. (laughs) What? (laughs) Brodus actually remained sheriff for a quarter century and was one of the country's most progressive lawmen. We like to say he lost the battle, but he and his associates won the war because they mobilized all the young people in town to register to vote and get involved in politics, is what uh, Watkins says. I misattribute this quote because I'm pulling this from another thing. So there's a documentary that was made about Thompson running, which actually was just released. I'll talk about it later. But its, its director is a gentleman by the name of Joseph Watkins. Whoa. Indeed. My brother's name is Joe. Oh, well. <gasps> this guy's not Plot a dick. Twist. So. Coincidence? Oh. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, um, 
Here we are. So, Edwards would become the Pitkin County Commissioner in 1972, where he instituted many of Thompson's policies, including environmental protection and land use reform. Land development was aggressively curtailed. Drug laws were liberalized, hence why Colorado was one of the first states you could legally buy weed in, friends. Michael. Wow. And, of course, the sheriff and his deputies gained a reputation for de-escalating conflict instead of persecuting freaks. Go figure. What a novel idea. So, 50 years later, perhaps, we can take a little comfort from the knowledge that the good fight can, in fact, be won, no matter how bleak things do look from time to time. In fact, the 2020 documentary Freak Power, The Ballot or the Bomb, which is available to stream on Amazon and iTunes for those of you who want to go check that out, tells the story of Thompson's run for sheriff using unearthed archival footage discovered by co-directors Daniel Joseph Watkins and Ajax Phillips. Arriving 50 years after Thompson's campaign, and of course right before the 2020 presidential election, for a little bit of irony for everybody, the film is meant to show a more serious side of the late journalist and mark another critical chapter in the story of a man who, to steal a phrase that he applied to his dear friend Oscar Acosta, was one of God's own prototypes, a high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. So with that, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite Hunter Thompson pull quotes to give you a little more illustration of why he and I are kismet kin here. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, I have pattered many of my mental processes after this man, and you can get that because I own a lot of his books, but this one always struck me. We are all alone. Born alone, die alone, and in spite of true romance magazines, we shall all someday look back on our lives and see that, in spite of our company, we were alone the whole way. I don't say lonely, at least not all the time, but essentially and finally alone. And this is what makes your self-respect so important. And I don't see how you can respect yourself if you must look in the hearts and minds of others for your own happiness. Fine, I'll read some Hunter S. Thompson. (laughs) Fine. This was all leading up to that declaration. Indeed. But, uh, no, I I love the man to death, and it's one of those things, like, I think the way he lived his life, and unfortunately the way he ended it, has somewhat (laughs) soured a lot of people's perspectives on him, but really wonderful, open-minded, progressive individual who just was a little bit too quick with the tongue and a little vitriolic from time to time. I don't know who that reminds me of at all. But, uh... (laughs) In any event, that is my discussion of Freak Power Hunter Thompson for Sheriff. So thank you for letting me rave at you for a little bit. Well done. Thank nice. you. I I will admit there is an excellent uh, article that I stole a good portion of this from as well. It's going to be the first one in the show notes, and I should credit uh, the author for that as well. So uh, for everybody who was hanging out there. That is David Wills. Uh, this is a 2020 article. Really well done. Encapsulated a lot of the things that I already knew, but kind of helped to help me to some of this stuff. So made it a little more interesting. For sure. So any uh, further stabs here for uh, lies? I know as uh, bizarre as the topic is, it's a little hard to make guesses. You had mentioned at some point that they stayed at uh, the Jerome Hotel. I wanted to ask about that. Yes, that is, is that... actually a hotel. Mm-hmm. Okay. In in Aspen? Yes. Huh. Okay. Strangely enough. Sneak some fuckery in there. Hmm. Also, uh, Thompson was a very big fan of the Chateau Marmont for those who play the home game. Bless you. Also where Evan Rachel Wood and Marilyn Manson met for the first time. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Johnny Depp hangs out there a lot. So, you know, it's all just one big marinade these days, apparently. So what you're saying is that any one of those people could have pooped the bed. Exactly. Just not the dog. So, anybody other than the Jerome Hotel? Uh, The sheriff that was elected with the drug reform, was that actually why... Weed is legal in Colorado, or is that just like one of the an leading events too? I'm I'm extrapolating. I don't think there's any literal connection that you can run with, but I mean, it does help to kind of greatly inform the sure. mindset of the individuals who float toward Colorado. 
Because once you figure out, as, I mean, this was, it put Aspen in particular, but Colorado in general on a national platform to show that there were individuals with a progressive mindset. And much like individuals flying over to enjoy their libertarian delights up in Delaware, you also get <laughs> individuals of like mindset that likely flew to Colorado. And so you can kind of extrapolate sure. some of this does factor into that. And it is a president as well. Mm-hmm. So if it's already happened and it's already like kind of successful in that way, shape or form, it makes it a lot more likelier to be expanded into a more yeah. larger, you know, one thing. seed helps the others to bloom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I have no stabs. Wow, how unfortunate. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> so you did get uh, lie number one, that his zeal for firearms uh, got them thinking there was going to be a military coup if he did not win. That was not, in fact, the case. Uh, lie number two is, of course, a quote and uh, one that uh, y'all weren't going to run with. So the actual quote from our, our good friend Guido Mayer... Ah. <laughs> was, in fact, those dirty hippies, they're all over the place, and they're filthy. They haven't washed, and they smoke dope. God damn hippies. <laughs> I should have asked, because it sounded almost like... To Shane? Like, yeah, like, you took, like, you decided to try, and you were Shane playing as Nixon. Uh-huh. It sounded like... What you saying Nixon. phrases like undereducated and unwashed miscreants masquerading as saviors for change when they aren't capable of changing their own clothes sounds like something I would say? Hmm. No. Not at all. All right. So that's lie number two. Lie number three is a Thompson quote which he did not actually say during this trial, but it was something that fell in later on, which is uh, saying that we can't expect people to have respect for law and order until we teach respect to those we've entrusted to enforce those laws. If you're going to be crazy, you have to get paid for it or else you're going to be locked up. Those are two separate quotes that are not attributable to anything that happened around this time, but they were so apt as I was looking through things. I was like, I'm just going to fly those right over and it works well. Do you know the context behind those quotes? Uh, like no, because I to? those were I pulled them off of a Goodreads list of quotes oh, as I was looking okay. for the one I used okay. at the end, and I was like, "Oh, these are perfect." So, uh, but neither of them were attributed to a book, strangely enough. So, hmm. who knows? I could be lying on top of a lie, and they actually were said <laughs> during this campaign, and I just didn't know. But uh, who's to know, friends? Who's to know? Who's who could it be know? now? Who is phone? Who was phone? Uh, Michael did get number uh, four, which was the uh, strange law that you could kill any pig you found on your property as long as you sent it to the overseer afterward. You have to name it first. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, And there has to be 30 to 50 of them. I name you Winston Nipplechill. Right on. (laughs) Blue blam. Now, uh, lie number five is a derivative of a prior lie, which was saying that uh, they were expecting that he was going to want to militarize the police force. And so they had concocted arguments against this, uh, you know, under the auspices they would have to debate him. Yeah, that wasn't something that they cared about. Oh, again, like you said, conservatives are real fond of guns. No one really gave a shit. They were they were very happy for it to fly out. So uh, that's another one of those dodges where I wasn't sure whether you'd stick with it all the way through the episode. And I was right. So I I will I will admit (laughs) that I know the NRA started getting a lot more like um, they actually around the time of the Black Panthers were very gun control esque. Um, because they didn't want the Black Panthers to have Correct. guns because they were deathly afraid of that. Yes. Um, so they actually, for a time around the 60s, which is why I was hesitating to call that out, mm-hmm. they were actually a lot more for gun control um, to prevent. As I said, like yeah, the they, they love guns until they get pointed at them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. All right. And then the, the last two lies, you were on to me, but not all the way on to me. So, Uh, they wanted the police force to be trained to use wolverines and high-powered explosives. (laughs) He didn't say a damn thing about tasers because they weren't invented until 75. Damn it, I wonder if they were. 
though. It's close enough that uh, you, you wouldn't be. And again, jujitsu, I figured, was far enough out that you'd probably latch on to that more than you would the taser. So I actually did a lie to hide a lie on top of the list that I was already running with. So you were smart, Michael. Just not that smart. Damn, <laughs> so, man, it's so the, the meta, Michael Clark story. The meta, I'm, yeah, I'm, also true. I'm starting to incept my lies now with tears. So you know, You're what are you going to do? He's evolving. <laughs> so <needs>. those <laughs> are the seven lies that we have for this evening. Nice. Huh. I actually do think I will read some Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, I'm telling yeah, you, they're fantastic. In fact, um, the first book he ever wrote was Hell's Angels. And that details... Way. Well, technically, Rum Diary was the first book he wrote. It wasn't the first book that was published, though. Hell's Angels gotcha. got published. Uh, and he rode around with the Hell's Angels, actually ingratiated himself amongst the group, and left because he was almost beaten to death. So the picture from the cover of the book is him with an eye that's you know swelled and almost about to you know bloody pop out of the socket from the looks of it really compelling stuff but a fascinating sort of study of the culture of the sort of outlaw biker gangs which is something that later on sons of anarchy fans would really you know grow to love and appreciate but thompson's kind of one of the progenitors of individuals actually taking up interest in that culture and the weird rites of passage and how you have to be sometimes beaten in order to be incorporated into the group, like weird stuff. It's really weird. But yeah, uh, fantastic. I have recommendations if you really earnestly want to start out. Everybody will say Fear and Loathing is the one to start with, but uh, it varies. So, All right. Well, I'll let you know. All right. Shoot. Well, uh, anything else for the good of the group here, friends? No, I don't know if we've asked you this before, but what is your favorite Hunter S. Thompson book? If you have one, man, they're all or several. I figured <laughs> this would be a very good question to ask. So that's a, I, I might say Hell's Angels, actually. Um, there are collections of his shorter writings as well. But I mean, the great shark hunts. Fantastic. That's one of the ones where he was on the presidential campaign trail following the uh aspen things this is the one i alluded to the 72 election okay. uh and you get a lot of interesting missives and sort of reflection on the political process there um there's a book that almost got me kicked out of my library in the college i was in there's uh it's called better than sex <laughs> and it, that's very loud and a huge title on the cover of the book but again it's mostly political reflections so um kind of <laughs> hilarious <laughs> But uh, those are great. Hey Rube is another one that collects a lot of his um, quick publications because when websites started popping up, he became a contributor to many. And so this okay. collects a lot of his little articles and things that were written and details a lot of what happens up to his death because these are the things where he starts waxing about the disgust of a nation that would elect George Bush not once but twice and essentially is hinting at if this happens, I won't have faith in humanity anymore. Like I'm not going to see it. So you basically get little snippets of his mindset right up until the end, which is Goddamn. very depressing, but uh, also yeah. interesting to get a feel for his perspective on things and why he felt the way he did. And so strongly, in fact, so uh, those are some recommendations, but you can go for hours on this. Hell yeah. So, uh, I think that uh, we have sufficiently plugged because I imagine we're going to be flying over uh, another commercial for the beginning of this episode oh, yeah, here. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you're if you're not prepped to see us at Fan Fusion, you're going to miss out. You're going to have a bad time. So you, you need pizza, to when you're supposed to French fry, you're going to have a bad time. Indeed. Gonna have a bad Especially time. in Aspen. <laughs> <laughs> Your ass been used up. <laughs> But uh, so the 27th and 28th, please come check us out. There is a link down in our link tree for you to snag tickets, and we would love to see you there. And furthermore, uh, I've heard some very interesting reviews of our After Dark this week, which is a delightful time for all, and you get to see more and more profane nonsense from us here. So thank what you, Courtney, the, uh, for the getting that. that you, what was the review that you saw? Well, I can't say it yeah, on what air. Yeah, have you heard? Is it oh, okay? No. Well, uh, can't, uh -oh. can't wait to uh, you know not include this in the episode so that we can throw this onto the uh, Shane cut. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Hashtag <laughs> release the Shane cut. Uh, I do like that there are people that are openly lobbying to hear me just crucify myself on this podcast of like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to keep a job. <laughs> I don't, I'm not looking for a new one, but I mean, I, I'd like to just maintain the one I have. So no. <laughs> I say some yeah. things to crack up my friends here, and that's really all that I intend for it to do. I don't need to make you people be amused. Come on. Yeah, what is that, our job? <laughs> You'd think. No, it's actually not. <laughs> no, you have to get paid for it to be your job, Michael. I know. He's not that's, familiar with the concept. Don't be too harsh with him. Yeah, what is don't, getting paid? Don't hurt the poor man. He has a family. Hi, kid. We love to have you all entertained. That's what we're here for. Week in, week in, town out, town out. And, uh, you know, I never say that correctly. It's just uh, week in, week out, town in, town out. Uh, but we love you. And if you love us, too, you can show us how. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. We would love to hear from you. Of course, you can find us on the occasional Wednesdays over on the Tubes of You with After Dark material. But also, Michael is just inundating you all with shorts if you're not following us on youtube go like subscribe over yeah. there because you'll be getting just so much of the snippets you can so watch the light movies. leave his eyes i'm looking it up right Beautiful. now just to see how many you've done you salty salty oh man I, I, you're gonna be there en- a minute There's oh a i lot. have yeah. enough to get through may with one a day there there will be one a day usually i think at around seven or six in the morning mountain time Post-its. So time, <laughs> yeah. Take us like a vitamin. <laughs> Start your day off with a dose of disinformed, and it feels like dysentery. <sighs> I guarantee <laughs> we won't make you healthier. We're bad for your teeth, but uh, great for your disposition. So uh, you know, hit that little hit that little thumb from time to time, just to show us how much you love us. And furthermore, I saw something today that is going to officially wrap me up, and I have decided that this is going to be the way that I'm closing the episode, because it's it's a part of my aspirations for the man I want to be. It's not who I am yet. But uh, in traffic, I saw a bumper sticker that actually gave me a moment of pause and reflection, and I thought, I wish there were more people like this in the world. Okay. On the back of a hybrid in front of me as I was sitting at a stoplight was a sticker that said, I hope something great happens to you today. Oh, that's cute. And I was like, Aw. That's very simple, yet profound and stirring, and it's a sentiment I wish I espoused more. And I'm going to strive for that. And so I figure I, you know, I don't have a lot of sign offs anymore and I need more airtime. I don't talk nearly enough on this show. <laughs> Agreed. And so since Michael has now taken over the duties for sending us off, I will say as my Mr. Rogers, as I zip up my, uh, you know, cardigan on the way out the door, I'll say friends, listeners, loved ones out there. I hope something great happens to you today. Aww. So for the disinformed podcast this week. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Michael. I'm Courtney. And zippity zoop, we're out of here.